Everything that you study in the book of Psalms was sung in worship, which is something instructive to us in our, our uh, worship today. I, just, I taught a seminary class on worship, and one of the assignments was to pick four psalms and ask uh, how they teach us how we are to be worshiping today. And every one of the students said, it taught me that there should be a broader range of emotions expressed in worship. Uh, you know, uh, life is not always happy clappy. And uh, sometimes uh, worship can be all happy clappy. Worship is, and uh, life is not always a long dirge either. And uh, worship shouldn't always be a dirge. Worship is not all, life is not always, you're not always filled with confidence. Uh, sometimes there are doubts. And all of that is found in the Psalms. Every conceivable human emotion is expressed in the Psalms. And then to think further, uh, if you, I think I've made this point before, that uh, we have indication from the book of Hebrews that, that uh, Christ was the one speaking these Psalms. Christ is the one writing these Psalms. He, he prayed these Psalms, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, these are the Psalms of Christ prayed through David and Asaph and Solomon and Moses. So as you read the book of Psalms, you see every emotion that we can experience. John Calvin called it the anatomy of the soul. And uh, you also see uh, the Lord Jesus experiencing all of those emotions on our behalf so that no matter what you're feeling, no matter what you're going through, you do go to a Savior who understands, who has been made like you, like us, in every way, even emotionally. He knows what it is to be depressed. He knows what it is to be anxious. He knows what it is to be angry. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to be joyful. He knows what it is to enjoy worship. He knows what it is to say the darkness is my closest friend. Well, with all of that as background, here is a psalm in which Asaph says, now it's time to give thanks. And yet, as we go through the psalm, we'll look at some things and say, I'm, I'm uh, Asaph, I'm having trouble figuring out what you're giving thanks for. You're in the middle of a battle. You've got, there are bad people around you. The economy's tanking. Uh, there's the, there, there are people who seem to be getting away with the evil that they're doing. There seems to be injustice. And you tell us to give thanks? And Asaph says, yes, I do. And not only am I commanding you to give thanks, I'm giving you reasons from a redeeming God and from the redeemed for why you must. So, struggling to give thanks today, this psalm, this psalm is for you. Let's begin reading in verse 1. <clears throat> we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn, do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. 
For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I'll declare it forever. I'll sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Let's pray together. Would you open our eyes, Lord, that we would see the gospel of Jesus Christ in this psalm, not only as it is prayed by him in our place and for our sakes, but as the reasons that are given to us for giving you thanks are ultimately founded in him. I pray, Lord, for a man in this room or someone listening to this uh, later by recording, anyone who does not know you in a personal way, how frightened they must be and have absolutely no reason to give thanks for anything. So would this be the day that you open their eyes to Christ as their Savior and transform them into thankful people? And for the rest of us, uh, some of us, our faith is dim, our We've lost sight of you. It's as if the clouds have covered you up. And we need, O oh Lord, for you to break through those clouds and to lift our anxiety, our depression, our circumstances. You need to make a way for us. You need, to, you need to split the sea and give us a road to escape. But before that even, we pray that you would cause us to give thanks, that we would give a testimony to your overcoming faithfulness. Pray in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said, amen. Amen. Yesterday I had an unexpected blessing. Uh, My third grade Sunday school teacher showed up to say hello. Now you say he must be 150 years old. Well, uh, some of you sitting on the front would think that. And uh, he is older than I am for sure, but uh, it's a real blessing. Now, I'm getting a little paranoid because the week before that, my high school Sunday school teacher showed up. Um, I'm just hoping, you know, my elementary school, my first grade Sunday school teacher didn't show up. But uh, those remembered me fondly, the third grade and the high school Sunday school teacher. That third grade Sunday school teacher, his name is Mark, uh, What was memorable about him uh, was that he had just been converted himself. We were uh, were disappointed, actually, when he came to our Sunday school class and, and, uh, and handed out Bibles to read because he had a reputation of teaching in the summer. He was a cool college kid, and he liked to talk about sports stories. He didn't tell us Bible stories. He talked about sports stories because he wasn't a Christian. He didn't know anything about Bible stories. Uh, but this time he'd become a Christian and ruined the whole Sunday school lesson, see? <clears throat> uh, but he put these Bibles in the middle of the desk and he said, I got to tell you what Jesus has done for me. He's transformed me. It was captivating to me. It would be a couple of years later before I would become a Christian, but he was the first Christian I had met and um, shared the gospel with me. So he's kept in touch, loose touch over the years. He came by yesterday to visit with me. And we talked about life and talked about challenges and uh, we talked about uh, difficulties you could be in. He's had, a, he's had a rough life at times. He lost his job. He uh, 
he gained another one, and now he's in a <clears throat> very demanding job, and he sometimes battles anxiety, he was free enough to share with me. He's a very simple guy. He says it that way. He said, you know, the Christian life is simple, and I'm a simple guy. He's an elder in his church, and he's a shepherd. He's very wise in the kind of simple advice he gives. And he said, George, here is the, here's, the, here's what I do when I'm anxious. Here's the, here's the secret to breaking out of anxiety. Well, I was on the edge of my chair. He said, it is Thanksgiving. The, the, the way to break out of anxiety is to thank the Lord, to force yourself to thank the Lord, to repeat what is true. And so he said uh, he had a list on his phone, a picture of a list that he had written up uh, years ago when he was in the deepest place of anxiety and depression. And he said he had written over a hundred a hundred things down for which he was thankful. And when he stood back and looked at, that, looked at that list, he said, I realize God had not abandoned me. God is with me. God is still in my life. He's still working. And at the top of his list was thanksgiving for saving him in Christ. Thanksgiving is not something you do when you feel like it, merely when you feel like it. Thanksgiving is to be a discipline. The old churchmen used to talk about the, the discipline of gratitude, forcing yourself to give thanks before you're actually thankful, before you actually feel it. And uh, God knows that struggle. That's why He writes down the Scripture for us. And here He has written down the vocabulary that we need to start giving thanks even before we feel like it. And along with it, our Heavenly Father is, is the kind of teacher who doesn't say, like I used to as a father, you know, go, go take out the garbage. Why? Because I told you to. He says, this is what I'm telling you to do, and here are the reasons. I'm telling you to be grateful, but I'm going to give you reasons to be grateful. The first reason he gives is that um, the church, the gathered church, is grateful. In other words, I'm calling you to something that is not, you're going to find that it's not crazy. If you take a look around, you listen to the testimony of the corporate church, you'll find that the church, by and large, God says, the church is grateful because I've, I maintain a remnant of thankful people who can give you testimony. And the specific testimony that I'm going to give you through the gathered church, when you gather for worship and you're surrounded by thankful people, I'm going to tell you this, I am near you. There's the first promise. There's the first reason to give thanks. God is near. Verse 1, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Now, in every passage of Scripture, every passage of Scripture, either implicitly or explicitly, points us to Jesus Christ. No message is complete without showing that connection, that uh, Christ is the motivation for whatever we're supposed to do. He is the enablement for what we're supposed to do. He is the focus. And there we have it right in the first verse. God is near. Every time you find a function of one of the persons of the Godhead, you find that person of the Godhead working. And when God says He is near, He means I draw near to people and I do it through my mediator, through the second person of the Godhead, Christ. What was His name? You will call His name Emmanuel. 
Why? Why do we call him Emmanuel? Because I want you to know God is with us. He has always been with us. Throughout the Old Testament, there are manifestations of him being with them. He would cause the ground to tremble. He would cause a pillar of fire to lead them at, at night, a pillar of smoke during the day. He would show up through the angel of the Lord. And, of course, in the New Testament, he puts skin on and makes sure you know he is with us. And, he, and then Christ sends his spirit to us as well. He moves inside of us. There is never a time God is not with us. And he is with us specifically, the text says, through his name. He is near to us by his name. A name in the Old Testament was a significant thing. People were named usually according to their characteristics. <clears throat> and so when God's name is used, when it's referenced, it means it's a reference, it's shorthand to all of his attributes. So not only is God's presence with you, every aspect of God, all of his attributes, all of his characteristics, all of his resources are with you, whatever your need. Oh, Lord, I'm afraid. God says, I am a refuge. I'm a strength. That's in my name. That's here. Oh, God, I'm, I've given in to that besetting sin once again. I, I'm I feel so far away from you. I am holy. I am the Redeemer. Oh, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I'm afraid I might lose everything. I am the one who is sovereign and makes the plans I have for you to give you a hope and a future. All of God's characteristics, all of His promises are here as close as the beating of your heart because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Christ is your Savior. It's a reason to give thanks, even before you feel thankful. Verse 1 goes on to say, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks to you for your name. All of your attributes are near to us. And a second sub-point under that, that idea that God is near to us, the congregation says, remember they're singing this, we recount your wondrous deeds. Pay attention to that as you study Scripture, how often the wonderful works of God are mentioned. Uh, God <clears throat> is not distant from us. God uh, isn't a deistic God. That is, he, He's the, the, the clockmaker God, you know, set things in motion and then step back from it. God is active in our world. In theology, we call that His Eminence, not eminence. It's spelled with an A in the middle. Eminence means he's near. So he's transcendent, but he's also eminent. He is near in the way he works, and you can observe the way he works, and his works are wonderful. Not only do Christians recognize what he does, and we should recognize, we should name what he does for us. When God does something for you, name it, tell other people. They need to hear about it. God uh, delivers you from a financial disaster. Tell other people about it. He heals your body. He does something kind for your family. He brings back a wandering child, does something good in your child's life. Tell other people about it. They need that encouragement. Uh, but not only do Christians recognize it, God makes 
God does wondrous works, that is, works that provoke people to wonder. He does works that provoke people to believe. Skeptics. It's a very interesting comment that Rahab the harlot, remember Rahab the harlot in the, in the book of Joshua, book uh, Joshua chapter 2? As the spies are coming into Israel to check out the promised land, and uh, Rahab uh, uh, hides them in her room and then eventually puts a scarlet cord out and allows them to escape. And uh, when, they, when, they, when they meet her at first, they find that they don't have to introduce themselves to her. They don't have to introduce God to her because she says, Joshua chapter 2 verse 8, um, I know, verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you went uh, before you and when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. It's an amazing comment that here in Canaan, Canaan, when the, where, the, where the Israelites had not yet gone, where they worshiped pagan gods, they said, we've already heard about your God. We've heard of the wondrous works He's done. He split the Red Sea. He delivers you from the kings. I'm eager to help you because I know your God is God, and I know your God is God through the wondrous works we've heard about. So you have this outside testimony. You have, when, you, when you stand up at the congregation, congregation can say, we have seen his wondrous works. We are here to remind you, even with our own bodies, that God is near to you. And some of us were skeptics, and we saw the wondrous works of God. Now we are converted. And we've also, we can tell you about other skeptics that we've met this week who have seen the wondrous works of of God. There is reason to give thanks. We give thanks because God is near and He's working in our world. He's not distant. Second reason we have to give thanks is from God's testimony, God's own testimony, verses 2 to 5. Congre- congregation has a voice in verse 1. Now God speaks in verse 2. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, to the wicked, do not lift up your horn, do not lift up your horn on high, or speak with haughty neck. What's he saying? God says, uh, look, you think your whole world's falling apart, but I can say with some authority, your world is not falling apart because I have the whole world in my hands. I have set it on its pillars. We have indications in Scripture of a of a covenant with creation. You're, you're familiar with covenants. God makes covenants with people. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Uh, God makes a promise. This is going to, I'm going to be your God. You're not going to cease to be my people. I'm going to be faithful to you. But there are indications, too, that uh, God made a covenant with creation. That, uh, you know, after Adam and Eve sinned, uh, God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall die, and you'll introduce uh, brokenness and, and, um, and disease and, and difficulty and, and entropy into the creation, but creation's going to go on. Uh, he says at some point in, in uh, the prophet, 
the prophets, uh, as, long, as long as the sun rises and sets, as long as the stars stay in, their, in the sky, as long as the planets stay in their orbits, I am going to be your God. I'm going to maintain my covenant with you. Noah would have had reason to question that, wouldn't he, after, he's, after the world's been destroyed by the flood? And God brings the, the ark to rest. Mount Ararat, the waters recede. And Moses timidly walks out of the ark with his, with his family members. He builds an altar. And God says, Moses, here's the promise I'm going to make to you. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. I'm going to keep the earth on its axis. I'm going to keep it in its orbit. I'm going to keep the finely tuned machinery of the cosmos together until I finish my work of redemption. The earth, you may think that the earth feels like it's tottering on its axis because of some suffering that's come into your life or some setback you've had, but it hasn't. God maintains this creation and this cosmos and its order because he has not finished redeeming. I heard it once, I heard it a hundred times because the Georgia football team was used to losing. I'd hear those, those loyal Georgia football teams saying, I've had to learn to say it as an Auburn fan too, that the, those loyal Georgia football fans would say, uh, the sun will rise in the morning, you know. The world seems to have ended tonight, but I think the sun will rise tomorrow. Well, you, you may feel like the world has come to an end. The sun will rise, and the reason the sun will rise is God will say, rise, because there's more redemption yet to be done. You have reason to give thanks as long as the earth endures, Because the earth is enduring and being preserved by God's sovereign hand and he's keeping it in its place, keeping it going, not only to redeem other people, but because he has work to do in you. He still has the work of causing all things to work together for the good for you, the one he loves and the one he's called according to his purpose. So that is your confidence, but what does he say to the unbeliever, to the boastful, to the one who says, I have success because I've done it. Or look at how things are happening to those righteous people. Their, their Christianity is not working for them. Horn is a, is a saying, an Old Testament saying, describing strength. You know, you think about a, an animal, a rhinoceros. The, the, his power, his lethal power is concentrated in that horn. And so horn is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, uh, an allegory or a... Uh, an image of strength, and he says, you're pretending like you're a great horned animal uh, who can't be challenged. No one can take him down, but I'm telling you, God someday will bring you down. Don't be haughty. The only reason you, the only reason you are strong today, the only reason you're successful today and continuing to live outside of Christ is because God has given you time to repent. And, and this kind of warning also encourages, encourages people who are trying to follow Jesus because it tells us that God is going to bring all things to justice someday. Now, we have to be careful pointing the finger at, <clears throat> in the news at certain people who finally get found out or 
or get uh, prosecuted or thrown in jail, we have to be careful. To, we should pray for them first and not say, you know, that's what they deserve and I don't. We know that the only reason we have been saved is by grace. But when evil is revealed, we can at least say this, God has done it. And God gives us those, those uh, one, one uh, author calls it intrusion ethics. God takes the, God takes the, the characteristics of the coming judgment day and to keep us encouraged occasionally brings it to bear in the present life. A situation in my family in which someone was being, has been terribly mistreated for a decade and uh, he went scot-free. He was abusive to his wife, abusive to his children, abusive to other people in, in all the other environments, and no one could catch him. No one could bring him to justice, and he really became like this. He was haughty. He, 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 was, uh, he, was, he was bragging about it. He was making fun of the rest of the family. Yesterday, the floor was brought up to him, and uh, the judge uh, lowered the boom on him. And while I pray for his soul, I give thanks to a God who says, now here is just a foretaste, just a taste, that the, righteous will not, the unrighteous will not succeed. I will bring all things to judgment. So you can give thanks that your sovereign God holds all creation in his hand and your God is a just God and he will bring all things to justice someday. There's a, there's a reason to give thanks. The third reason to give thanks is in verses 6 to 8. <clears throat> We've had um, the congregation's testimony. We've heard God's testimony. Now here's the preacher's testimony. Verses 6 to 8. The voice changes a bit. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment. See, the preacher's talking about God. It's not God talking now. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. <clears throat> the preacher really doesn't say anything new. He's not supposed to. The preacher is not supposed to say things new. The preacher is supposed to say, here's what God's word says. Let me make it plain to you. And then apply it to you. This is what God is saying to you. So the preacher goes back up to what God has just said. And he said, now let me explain to you. The first thing you need to do is look at God. And I've got to tell you, he says, I've got to tell you to look at God because that's not, what you're, that's not your natural disposition. It's not mine either. My, uh, my friend who visited, my Sunday school teacher who visited me yesterday said this. Here's the, here's the order Here's, what, here's the way we need to live. Glance and gaze. Glance at yourself. Glance at other people, just so you can kind of get your balance a little bit. But keep your gaze on the faithful God who's been revealed in Jesus Christ. So the preacher says, you know, the one reason you're not grateful, one reason you're so frightened, one reason you're so angry is because you've got your eyes fixed on other people. You're looking at all these people who seem to be getting away with wickedness. You, you, you're looking at all these circumstances, these, these enemies that are against you. You're looking at your own failures. You're looking at your, your own self-pity. 
Well, glance at yourself, but keep your gaze on the faithful God. That's what he's saying in verses 6 and 7. And then he reminds us again, just in case you missed it, he says, remember, God is the one who is going to repair everything. Verse 8, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. This is a frequent metaphor used for judgment in the Old Testament. It's a, it's the, it's the, it's, it's the witch's brew. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a deadly uh, mixture uh, that someone is going to drink, and it's even the, the, the smoke is rising from it. It's obviously ominous, and he says, I'm going to pour it out. I'm going to pour out this cup of wrath. Similar image in Jeremiah chapter 25 and Jeremiah 49, 51, and uh, Revelation 18, verse 6. Let me read this, um, this comment by an old Scottish preacher named Murdoch Campbell, who, um, who commenting on this one verse, recounts the, uh, a list of famous kings, famous despots, who put themselves up as God and put themselves up as those who are victorious over God's people. And then he helps us remember what came of them. He says, Pharaoh reacted to God's command to let the people go by saying, who is God that I should obey him? Nebuchadnezzar endeavored to set his throne and kingdom above him whose throne and kingdom are forever and ever. Herod listened to the adulations of his degenerate admirers. He said, it is the voice of a God and not of man. Coming near to our own time, we've read of how Adolf Hitler gazed at a picture of himself riding proudly on a white horse, a picture which bore the blasphemous title, In the Beginning Was the Word. Then in a voice that deliberately mocked Christ, the eternal king, Hitler said, I am providence. But Pharaoh and his hosts are swept to destruction. Nebuchadnezzar becomes a companion of the beasts of the field. Herod is devoured by worms. Hitler becomes a suicide. Those that walk in pride, God is able to abase. He shall cut the spirit of princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. All the horns of the wicked will I cut off. Don't forget history. There have been many people, many movements, many sales pitches who said, I have the answer. And God will not share his glory with another. The fourth reason we give thanks <clears throat> is an individual, it seems, a layman in the church. We've had the congregation, the corporate testimony of God's people. We've had uh, God himself give testimony. We have the preacher reminding us what God just said, and now an individual comes up, one person, who says, I want to tell you, I believe exactly the same thing. I can tell you in my own life, I can tell you how I've been delivered. I will declare it, verse 9, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. There's an old Puritan named Daniel Whiting, not well known, but wrote a book called Old Jacob's Altar, Newly Repaired. And uh, his point was that believers should, should effectively build an altar of thanks to God, like Jacob did. Jacob said, I was, I was delivered. God changed me. Changed my, he, I know he is with me, so I'm going to build this, this 
this stack of rocks, so I'll have an opportunity to say, you know what those rocks mean? It means that God wrestled me down, caused me to rest in Him, and made His covenant promises to me. And so the old Puritan Whiting said that, that uh, Christians should make a record of their dangers, deliverances, and duties and share them with one another. He said there are three reasons we should do that. He says, um, for one, while our particular trials of faith may be different in their details, God's method for dealing with them are the same. You may have different problems, but God deals with all of our problems in the same way. He draws near and He delivers and gives us hope in the present. Another is that a person's experience is a very powerful apologetic. You know, I was tempted to believe that God doesn't help, that God is not near, that God doesn't save. But this person had the same problem I did, and God, God showed himself strong in that person's life. That person give thanks, gives thanks counterintuitively. There must be a transcendent reason for that Christian to live with that kind of joy. The third reason is we grow in our love for those who share their trials with us. And that happened with me yesterday when that Sunday school teacher was telling me that he battles anxiety. I didn't think I could love that man any more than I did, but when he shared with me his weakness and how God had delivered him through it, I grew in my love for him. I saw him to be more of a brother, more of someone who shared flesh and blood with me and was dependent on the same Christ I was. It binds us. It bonds us together. Our troubles bond us together. Don't keep them under your hat. Do you really think that people think that you don't have any problems? You think you're being successful with that? You haven't convinced them. They're just thinking, I wonder what they are. So you might as well tell them. You might as well tell them you're not as smart as you think you are and your kids aren't as wonderful as you pretend they are and, you're, and you, you sometimes struggle with money and you struggle with hope and you struggle with lust and you struggle with weakness and depression and anxiety and sometimes your wife, you and your wife fight and you might as well tell them we all know it's there to just come clean with it and then we'll all be encouraged together. But don't just stop there saying here is how the Lord has shown himself faithful. I'm not going to ask you to do this literally, but I want you to <clears throat> think through this in your own mind. When Charles Spurgeon was, came to Christ, he was a young man, and he, he wandered into a church, and uh, there were only about three people in the church that day. It was a, it was a, a snowy day in, in England, and, and uh, the preacher couldn't even get to church, so an elder stood up and started preaching, and he preached on holding up the, the, the serpent in the wilderness, and, and that that. And, you know, the only way people were saved from those serpents that were, that were biting them, it's the story in Numbers, is look up. You know, he didn't say, you know, wrestle the snakes and catch them by the head and then you, you know, snap their head off and save yourself. He didn't say that. He didn't, he didn't have them do some kind of, make some kind of potion or do some kind of incantation. The only thing they could do to be saved was look. And the preacher said, how hard is it to look? So he, he looks down at Charles Spurgeon. He said, young man, you look miserable. You need to look. You need to look at Jesus. Look up. And so I, I ask you in your own mind's eye, I'm not going to ask you to do this, but look around 
In your mind's eye, look around this room. You are surrounded by men who say, God is near. And he's as near as I am to you. And I'm also, you're surrounded by men who say, I will bear your burden with you. And then, don't just look around, look up. Glance, gaze. Gaze at the faithful God who has the whole world in his hands and he has you and me, brother, in his hands. And then you've been looking at the preacher and I've told you everything that God has just said to you. And then, in your mind's eye, look around this room at men you know who have been skeptics in the past, who you know have had difficult times, and they are here today. They've lost children. They have lost businesses. They have lost wives. They have lost, they have lost, um, they've lost their health, and they are here. And they are giving thanks for one reason. Because Christ has been faithful in them. And caused them to come thus far. And they can say to you, evil will not succeed. The righteous will be lifted up. And be encouraged to give thanks yourself. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, thank you for drawing near to us. Every time we read your word, we hear your voice. You are as close as the reading of the word of God because you are that word. And thank you for bringing your attributes, the whole the whole arsenal of your Godhood within our grasp that we might have every resource we need for life and godliness. Thank you, God, for speaking to us personally in your word. Thank you for giving us preachers, teachers, to tell us what the Lord said, remind us of, and apply it to our lives. And thank you, Lord, for these individuals in this room who have many battle scars, many reasons they could say, cursed be the God of Abraham for what he's done to me. Many reasons they could become cynical. Many reasons they could turn their back on you. But they believe you all the more. And you prove at least one purpose of your suffering, and that is the suffering that you, you entrust to us, and that is to silence your cosmic accusers who say to you about us, they only serve you because of the stuff you give them. As long as life is going well with them, they'll praise you. <clears throat> but when you withhold your hand and allow us to suffer and you cause us to love you even more dearly and to thank you, even so, you get a name for yourself. We pray that our, our thankful testimony would bring fruit today, that someone would be led to Christ, that someone would be led to ask us, what is the what is the secret to your spirit that remains grateful regardless of suffering? Give us opportunity.
to say, stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake. God's men said, amen.